You're listening to the Book Lovers Podcast from Spartanburg County Public Libraries. This is a show where we talk about books, reading, and culture. I'm Joseph Henderson, the media specialist. I'm Carmenita Turner, the media collection development librarian. And I'm Jess Herzog, the director of adult services. Instead of reading certain titles on this episode, we're turning our attention to the ALA Youth Media Awards and specifically the Alex Awards, which are annually named by the Young Adult Library Services Association and highlight books written for adults that have special appeal for readers ages 12 to 18. The Alex Awards hold a unique place in the book award world because they are given based on the perspective of the reader rather than the merit of the creators. We're also sharing our favorite winners and nominees. Let's get started. So here in February, we find ourselves right in the middle of book awards season, uh, which sort of carries over from a previous year and into about the middle or so of, uh, of a given calendar year. And r- recently, uh, the Youth Media Awards have been announced uh, through the American Library Association, and we wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about those awards today on the show uh, because they they have a fairly unique profile um, in relation to libraries and and library services. Yeah, there are a number of awards for children's books and young adult books and the youth media awards from ALA are probably, I would say the most well-known perhaps like you don't know the, the name youth media awards necessary necessarily, but you have heard of the Caldecott medal. Mm -hmm. You have heard of the Prince award. You have heard of the Newberry medal. Like these are big awards and books that say this is the book of the year. And honestly, I could say that those awards, at least two of the ones you mentioned, the Newberry and the Caldecott awards, like those were familiar to me as, as a young person, like as a a young reader, simply because I would see them on the covers of books and wonder what those were about. The, those are both very longstanding awards. They have been around since the early 1900s. I think the, I want to say that the Caldecott began in like the 1920s for illustration of exemplary illustration of a children's picture book for the most part. Um, And then the Newberry, I believe even predates the Caldecott and the Newberry is specifically for excellence in children's literature. And the Prince Award is kind of similar to the Newberry, but for teen books. Um, And overall, the Youth Media Awards actually have 18 total awards compiled into them. Yeah, there's there's actually a lot of them. I was going through the list and I was like, boy, this is a lot, but this is good because it's, it's representation that we need. They focus on everything from... Latina and Latino creators to the Stonewall Award, which is specifically for LGBTQ titles for children um, in children's literature. There are also three Lifetime Achievement Awards for both writers and supporters of children's literature. So that includes librarians and paraprofessionals. Um, But there's really only one award in the Youth Media Awards group that focuses on the interest of the reader as opposed to the merits of the creator. And that is the Alex Awards. And the Alex Awards are given annually to 10 books that were released in the previous calendar year. The ALA Youth Media Awards are usually announced in January at ALA's, what they call their midwinter meeting. And then they're celebrated at ALA's annual conference, which is over the summer. And so these were announced at midwinter, which was at the end of January. And the Alex Awards specifically focus on books from the previous calendar year that have what they call a special appeal to young adults, despite being published for an adult audience. So these books are things that we would encounter 
in our regular fiction collection and science fiction and the graphic novels and nonfiction um, categories primarily for adults, but they have a certain appeal for teens in a way. I wonder if either of you could help to maybe demystify that idea of special appeal for our listeners, because I hear that and I think I kind of know what that means, but I, I wonder, I wonder if you could clarify it. So I think one of the clear ones for me is giving teens that are ready for something new, something more nuanced, but they're not quite ready for the hard-hitting, typical things of adult books. So take mm-hmm. the romance genre, for example. A teen that loves romance books may be a little bit ready, maybe a little bit done or a little bit ready to be done with the typical teen romance genre, but may not be quite ready for the most illicit adult romances. Mm -hmm. And so then things like the Alex Awards can be a really good way to sort of get them sort of ready for the more hard-hitting adult collection. Because like a YA YA, uh, romance um, might not have the same... I mean, might not have the same sexual content right. that uh, that a romance for adults might might have, and we we could also say because we've talked about romance on the show, m- might not have some of the same themes or kind of real world concerns that yeah. adult romances. So, like have. some of the adult romances we've talked about involved career changes, and that yeah. might be something that's not super relatable to a teen at seventeen, eighteen, as they're just getting ready to start college. Another one that I think of for genres is the fantasy genre, because adult fantasy is lots of intense world building, really complex sure. characters, but there's a lot of fantasy books in the Alex Awards that are really good bridged. So we have fantasy that is complex and well-known and lauded, like the Broken Earth trilogy by N.K. Jemisin, mm-hmm. but that is very involved and complex and might be a little too much for someone who's most used to teen fantasy. So the Alex Awards can kind of be a bridge from teen literature into the adult literature. And that's an interesting point to consider, just the the point about genre and like genre expectations and concerns. And in some ways, thinking about these awards as not just a bridge into a different type of reading, but also bridge into genre concerns and how those change for different audience levels. And you can even, you can even kind of look at it as a bridge to a certain level of creativity, because I think of one of my favorite teen books, which is going bovine by Limba Bray, which I think is an extremely creative book. Won the Prince award back in like 2005, I think. Um, It is about a young boy or really he's 15. I want to say he's just bridging into teenage teenage life and he has mad cow disease and he starts hallucinating all of these different characters and creatures and it's very uh very creative and very experimental in a certain way but just because you've read going bovine does not mean that you're ready for something like house of grass house of leaves house of leaves by mark danielewski like that is that's a big jump between them. So Alex Awards can really bridge a gap too between um, certain levels of what's being approached in some adult literature where kids are like, I really like this. This is really clever and creative. I want more of it, but they're not ready for being thrown in the deep end yet. And I think the Alex Awards too have a really special place in terms of adult readership because for a lot of people who are reluctant readers or may want to get into a genre but aren't ready for, again, that deep dive into, like, they don't want to pick up an 800-page Jonathan Franzen novel. They're not <laughs> ready. I don't want to do that personally, so um, I can't blame them. Pass, yeah, I can't yeah. blame them. Um, but if, you, if you're interested in... For example, if you're really, really interested in science fiction and artificial intelligence and kind of computing science fiction and virtual reality, but you're not ready for William Gibson's... Neuromancer? Yeah, Neuromancer. Um, if you're not ready for that, like that's a, that is like throwing you right into the most intensive experience. You can start with Ready Player One, sure. which won an Alex Award. And that gives you kind of a good place to start and or you get your footing. start with the Murderbot, the first, uh, the first Murderbot. That's uh, an option book, as well, which I think right. was a nominee. 
uh, for an Alex was. Award. Yeah. yeah. So there's a lot of Alex Awards can be a really good place for adult readers to kind of start with something new that feels a little bit more approachable, maybe. And I like that take on the Alex Awards because I feel like when people love to read, we tend to think that everybody always loved to read. And that's just not true. Like there's plenty of people that got into reading later in life after they had, maybe even after they had children, they had the chance to get back into reading through giving their kids books. And I think that it's such a great way to ease people into reading without them feeling judged or criticized because it's really, it's really hard to be an adult that hasn't read to say, hey, I want to start reading and then be directed to the teen department. You don't want to read books for teens. You're a grown-up. You want to read books for grown-ups. And so that's what I think that's my favorite thing about the Alex Awards. Right. Yeah. As I was, as I was thinking about the, these awards and how in, in my own mind, I was translating this idea of special appeal, um, the books that would hold special appeal based on what I had read from these lists and what I had enjoyed the way, the way that I arrived at a, as my, at my own definition of this was to think about these books as providing for a reader, a really nice balance of complexity and accessibility where the, the books may be, you know, experimental or they may have really dark or intense or even violent themes uh, enough so to be memorable um, but but they are inviting and maybe even have a kind of satisfying quality to them that doesn't necessarily put you off the genre or more books by the author or sort of exploring further within um, within those sets of, of concerns, let's say. And that could be that could hold for, reading in horror uh, or reading in literary fiction or reading graphic novels or what have you. Yeah. And I, I want to hear more from you, Joseph, because in a, in a pre-library life, you were a professor yes. and some of the books that have appeared on this list are books that you have taught, correct? You taught Salvage the Bones. I did. I taught Salvage the Bones and, um, I taught an excerpt from um, uh, Rick Bragg's All Over But the Shouten, which is a memoir. And it was actually, I believe, on the very first uh, list of first year in 1998. Yeah. Um, So Salvage the Bones was a book that I chose partially because I thought it would fit well in a unit in the class where we were talking about Hurricane Katrina and art and writing around Hurricane Katrina, since that's part of the of the plot of the story. And um, as I was reading the novel, you know, it occurred to me that this would be this would stand for students uh, in a in a general education curriculum as a really great illustration of what literary fiction can do. Uh, because you do have in the in the main character this intertextual use of Edith Hamilton's mythology, where she's reading this for school, trying to make sense of her relationships and her life um, through uh, the stories of Jason and Medea and so on and other examples. And it's it's this really interesting moment where you thought, well, okay, there's this character making sense of what she's reading through, making sense of her life through what she's reading. Of course, you hope the same thing for your students as they're reading a book about a character. It's that moment of recognition that we, we hope we all have in some form uh, with what we read. But I also thought that the age of some of these characters would be somewhat relatable to to the, my students as well, because most of the students in this particular class um, were freshmen and sophomores. They were not that much older than this character in the novel who's in high school. Um, so, so it fit in the unit. It's a great book. It's complicated and allows them to think through really difficult questions about poverty and race in America as well as climate change. Um, so it, it was like this carrier bag that just had all this <laughs> stuff in it that like 
ooh, let's explore this in this way, but never in such a way where any of that was particularly overwhelming or so academic as to put them off because they it feels like so complex and climate change. How can I even think about that? Right. Yeah. It's it's really it's really difficult to talk about. But it makes it all with these topics almost more palatable in a way. Precisely. It's yeah. easier to digest that and start thinking about it and asking yourself the questions that are posed in the story without feeling hopeless in a certain way. Exactly. And easier to enjoy thinking yeah. about it, reading about it, as opposed to learning about climate change and then trudging through a very academic thesis. Right. About the causes of it. This puts it in a way that's a lot easier to not only learn, but actually enjoy reading about. And it, and it grounds the, it grounds something about thinking through climate change and natural disasters in just in relatable real life. Uh, and, and through this, you know, family's experience. Um, so, so I think, Again, there is that there is that sense of complexity where the complexity side is all of these themes, all of these concerns, you know, difficult character choices, what have you, um, violence and so on. But then the accessibility is making it like you're saying, making it palatable to to a reader. And again, readers of any age, adult readers who I'm thinking, again, they're not English majors. Most of the students in that class were not English majors. Um, and so maybe the last time they, for a lot of them, the last time they read a book of any length was high school when they were forced marched through Julius Caesar and, uh, the other, the, the other, uh, musty uh, yeah, classics yeah, of yeah, yesteryear. The death march through Catcher in the Rye. Right. And, uh, Macbeth. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> My so, childhood in a nutshell. <laughs> so it's one of those things where I didn't know what the Alex Awards were. I did not choose that book because it was on an Alex award-winning list, but it just so happened that I was essentially doing what the Alex Awards, at least in my mind, are kind of intended to do. And do you feel like there are other books that you've seen now that you know about the Alex Awards that you would teach? I I, I think so, yeah. I feel that Riot Baby would be a really great one to teach. I just finished reading it, and it tackles race and growing up in America in its current political social climate Mm -hmm. in a way uh, that's just very I think that would be very palatable yeah and yeah it's a very short book it's a very great book to read but it also has a lot of layers to it surprisingly yeah only I don't need it's probably less than 200 pages but it's just got so much that you could really dive into right yeah I mean I think I think depending on depending on the course structure there are a number of books that would have made the cut um that that does seem like one that um in a couple of classes that i taught probably could have could have subbed in had i you know had it been written at the time right 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 um <laughs> you know between the world and me by tanahesse coates um would be another one that was sort of a runner-up in a couple of classes mm-hmm. um where i went in a, in a different direction and went to his like antecedent and and taught some james baldwin instead but I, yeah, I think those those texts would make a lot of sense in a couple of in a couple of contexts, and um, I think if I were if I were to get the the plum teaching assignment of a kind of horror writing survey or something like that, um, actually one of this year's winners, um, Stephen Graham Jones's novel, The Only Good Indians, would absolutely make the cut. I mean, yeah. it is if you're thinking about horror writing from a craft perspective it's a real accomplishment of a a, a representing a balance of a number of different factors from characterization to just gritty grisly violence so then that's another one that could be one of those genre bridges that we were talking about earlier that's like oh you're like oh i've been reading these teen books that are a little bit spooky i really liked them but what's a good book next for me? Yeah, yeah, and I would, and I would actually, I would give that book to someone before I would give to someone in that position before I would give them Stephen King or Joe Hill. Yeah, and that's actually a question that we get actively a lot at our desk. We get teens coming up to us and saying, "I'm done with teen horror. I want the real stuff. Now. <laughs> yeah. They want the yeah. deep. <laughs> they they want to go deep and 
you, Joseph, you in particular have done a great job with giving them stuff that isn't Stephen King because I I agree with that perspective that maybe that's not just because it's the name you know doesn't mean right. it's the place to start. Right. Just because you know Tolstoy doesn't mean it's the place to start, right? <laughs> and and don't get me wrong, Stephen King is great. Horror fans should read him if Absolutely. they haven't, right? But I think that there are ways in which some of his most successful horror writing you know, that's just stuff that you have to kind of tear through. It's very long. And very long. I'm thinking of the paperback version of It that's like a million pages. It's yeah, a proper, it's a doorstopper. It's a proper doorstopper. <laughs> I think possibly longer than War and Peace even. I don't know. It's comparable. It's close. It's a thousand pages, shelf, shelf I believe, space. in terms what? of yeah, linear footage that it takes <laughs> up on the shelf. Um, Sheer metric tonnage. But in, And it's also like Stephen King's books. This is something else about the Alex Awards. There are a couple of things to kind of dissect here. Stephen King's books, thinking of it in particular, yeah, the main characters are kids, but they're dealing with an extremely adult situation. Yes, they extremely are. Extremely adult. And... Just because there are kids in the book doesn't mean it's for kids. Right. And just because there are teens in a book doesn't mean it's for teens. In the same way that just because there are adults in a book doesn't mean it's for adults. Right. Actually. So something about the Alex Awards that's so great is that it can pick through or really cut through all of adult literature, fiction, nonfiction, graphic novel, what have you, and say, just because there are grownups here doesn't mean that teens can't find appeal or... And that teens can't relate to what they're going through. Exactly. I think of something like one of the earliest, I think also on the very first list in 1998 was Into Thin Air by John Krakauer, which was assigned to me as assigned reading in high school. Yeah. And does a really, really good job. I mean, that's a super adult situation, getting stuck on Mount Everest in the middle of a snowstorm. Um, I can't think of anything more grown up than that, maybe, in a way. And Krakauer does a really good job of making that topic accessible without losing the heart of narrative nonfiction, which is to really tell a gripping story. Right. Mm -hmm. Another thing that occurred to me as I was looking through some of these lists and some of the winners and the nominees as well is that for a number of these titles um i think that i think that the even the like readership profile of recommendation gets broadened in some way because i i could see for a number of these books the entry point into the books not being another book or reading preferences but actually movies that you might like or TV shows that you might like. Absolutely. Like that 100%. would be, yeah. that's the hook in with a lot of these where say for instance, with uh, a book that um, I want to talk about in a second, a little more Wolf and White Van by John Darnielle. That is a title that I might recommend to uh, fans of a series like, Stranger Things, or even to fans of a series like Freaks and Geeks, because in both of those titles, the um, the game of Dungeons and Dragons is part of the story. Actually, I might just recommend that to fans of Dungeons and Dragons, straight up, um, because it it deals with a a, a character who develops a uh, a tabletop role playing game um, that's played entirely through correspondence, which is in some ways <laughs> that's your game on through the mail. Yeah, through the mail, which is actually part of the deep history of Dungeons and Dragons when it was uh, in its earliest days in the seventies. So, um, so that's a that's a book that has a, a totally different. Um, potential media appeal to not necessarily to readers, but to fans of those, um, to fans of those games. Yeah. The Alex awards looking, if you look over the nominees and winners of the last 10 years or so, you can really see their pop culture appeal and impact that they've had from where, from one of the books that was a nominee in recent years was from a podcast. There was a book that there's several that were made into movies, TV shows, et cetera, there's many that ended up on pop culture best of lists right. and things like that that are like Amazon or BuzzFeed top recommendations. And this is a really 
really underutilized, but I think very essential way to readers advise someone who is reluctant. 100%. Because, and this is something that I've, I've had to do at the desk multiple times with people who come in and they want to try to read. Their friends are like, you should read. We lost them as readers through high school because of what they were forced to read. And they're, they're wanting to try but we have no idea of what their reading tastes are. But to be able to take what they watch and what they play and pivot that into a book is probably one of the most beneficial ways to get someone back into reading mm-hmm. is to tell them there is a way in for you through the other things that you like. And to also point to them and say, pop culture can help here. Yes. And it is not something that is dangerous or harmful, but it can actually be a real benefit to you in this case. So the Alex Awards have been going since 1998. That's 23 years. That's 230 books that have won, not including the vetted list of nominations that YALSA, which is the Young Adult Library Services Committee or Association, releases every year that's a huge amount of books so i thought it would be nice for us to go through a couple of our favorites each so carmenita what do you got so i'm going to start with um city of thieves by david benioff which was a winner in 2009 and this is one that is a perfect kind of odd pop culture segue because david benioff is one of the showrunners for game of thrones and has written a couple of books And one of his other books, The 25th Hour, was turned into a movie. So he's someone that has a lot of pop culture clout. And so the fact that he won, it's sort of a perfect way to, like, have that pop culture door into the Alex Awards. And um, City of Thieves takes place in Russia during World War II. It's about a soldier and a boy that go on this almost magical realism kind of adventure to get eggs for an officer's wedding, for an officer's daughter's wedding. And it just has a lot of mystery and intrigue and just a little bit of the magical element without being too overwhelming while still presenting a very relatable story that just has a ton of depth to it. So that's my first one that I'd like to bring up. And then my second is um, a book that really surprised me to see on the list. It's The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. And um, that's a that's a sturdy one. Yeah, it's pretty big, isn't it? It's gigantic. I think that it's about 800 pages. I want it between six and 800 pages. And um, I read it in college. And I remember it was something that helped me get back into reading a little bit because from high school. And then I think I was in my halfway through my freshman year of college when I found this book. And I was doing some really intense majors and I was just reading constantly for school and I just was really hard for me to get back into reading for fun and so I started this book and it was so long and it took me a while to get into it and it basically took me an entire semester to read it but after working through it I kind of remembered how much I loved just reading for fun and that was sort of the thing that got me back into it after this seven or eight month break of fun reading and it's can be compared to a lot of different type of fantasy things. It gets compared to Harry Potter. It gets compared to um, tons of the classics of um, fantasy novels. But it's just got a character that's really lovable that you kind of want to root for, even though he's kind of an idiot. (laughs) And um, it's a really long, intense book that I'm glad that it's kind of on the list. Because I think it does have a lot of appeal for young, er, late teenagers or early 20-somethings. Yeah, it has that special appeal. Yeah, we don't see a lot of really, really long books on the Alex Award list. They tend to be average size. So Mm -hmm. it says something that something that long is on the list, that it can kind of overcome maybe the threat of being a large book Yes, to really grab readers. And I think it sort of fits, um, I think this one also fits well with our genre bridging because it has a lot of the hallmarks of high fantasy in it in a way that's a lot more palatable. And it's a really great bridge between like the dragon girls of teen fantasy and the dragon slayers of adult fantasy. It kind of does a really good bridge between these very intense it's a really good bridge between high fantasy for teen and high fantasy for adult. 
Nice. I really like that. I really like that framing of the <laughs> the dragon girls of teen fantasy versus the <laughs> dragon slayers of, of adult fantasy. Yeah. Um, because I think that actually helps me to lead into one of my uh, choices for, for favorites, which is uh, the novel Wolf in White Van by John Darnielle. And Darnielle is the uh, chief sort of soul singer songwriter lead member of the band the mountain goats a very important uh band to me and uh possibly the way in for some readers of the book who would say oh wow he writes novels as well um but the novel wolf and white van uh follows the story of uh this character sean um who is uh, disfigured uh, in an accident as a as a teen and um, as a as a young adult and then a later adult um, is the creator of the tabletop role playing mail play by mail game Trace Italian and um, the story is told in a sort of non chronological fashion moving backwards and forwards between. Sean's younger life as a heavy metal and Robert E. Howard Conan the Barbarian obsessed <laughs> uh, teenager. Um, so we have the high fantasy sword and sorcery stuff there um, that you're enjoying as a teen um, that then becomes really uh, uh, profoundly important and in some ways a real lifeline of survival um, in adult life. It's a it's a powerful novel, um, wonderfully told and and brief as well. I think it clocks in at just under three hundred or it's so. Like two forty pages. It's pretty short. Yeah, and um and and by the end you realize you've you've read something that is a at least to me it was a, a just a profound meditation on the importance of a certain kind of escapism again as a as a tether and as a lifeline that keeps you going in a world um that is just plagued with difficulty and as a as a fan of the music of the mountain goats it's a it, this is a theme that i think John Darnielle has been working on and thinking about in different ways you know what are the lifelines that we cling to in life what are the subcultures that help us get through in a world that seems bent against our existence and our our flourishing in some form so that's that's one book that i have and then the second book was actually uh, a book that really impressed me from last year uh, that actually won the, an, an alex award this year um, it's the novel the only good indians by Stephen Graham Jones, and I've alluded mm -hmm. to it already. It is, in some ways, if you are a if you are a seasoned horror reader, this is the type of story that would already draw you in. If you, uh, or let's say, if you're a seasoned horror reader and horror film fan, <laughs> this is the type of story that would already immediately draw you in because it follows a group of four uh, Native American men and the first part of the novel they are boys who are, are out on out hunting elk and they make a they make a choice uh while they are hunting elk that comes to haunt them the rest of their lives and haunt generations of their family to come wow and and so it's told with a real narrative economy as we move from Again, somewhat non-chronologically. Actually, no, I think it, it is organized chronologically. As we move from the past into from the past into the present, um, it is a horror novel, and it has uh, some incredibly violent scenes um, when characters are struggling with ancient otherworldly forces and the things that they drive, the violent things that they drive them those characters to do. Um, the characters themselves, you want to root for them, but you also know because you're reading a horror novel not to get too attached. <laughs> but I have to say, uh, and I don't want to, I don't want to go too deep into my description of this particular scene, but if you have read the novel, you'll know what I'm talking about. And if you're thinking about reading the novel, maybe this will hook you in. If you know, you know, there is, there's one of the best written scenes of a backyard 
basketball game that actually comes to have cosmic significance uh, <laughs> by the end of the novel um, that's so, so entertaining to read after, like in the middle of all this horror, all of this violence and, and destruction. And so uh, let that be the, let that be the hook. If you get to the, if, if you read this book for no other reason than this cosmically significant backyard basketball scene uh, between a young uh, native American woman and something I'll refrain from describing because it would give away too much. Well, um, I like, I like the idea of these two books that we've talked about, the only good Indians and the name of the wind as sort of being examples of something really cool about the Alex Awards, which are just genre primers. Yes. These are two books that kind of introduce to you, okay, these are the expectations, these are the tropes, these are what you can expect in this genre fiction for written for adults. And they're just a right. really good introduction to that. Yeah, that's a great point. Without bogging you down in the details. That's such a great point because if you like, if you read Stephen Graham Jones' The Only Good Indians, that's a pathway straight to it if you feel up for the challenge. Uh, if and, you're ready. <laughs> and don't mind, you know, straining your wrist holding the book. Uh, and it's also a pathway to a number of novels by Peter Straub and other horror writers who take that similar childhood choices, have adulthood, you know, consequences, adulthood hauntings, and so on. And The Name of the Wind is a perfect segue into R.A. Salvatore and some sure. of the big giants of fantasy from the early 2000s. Yeah, absolutely. Just what do you got? My books, meanwhile, aren't really segues into a genre. But there's <laughs> another thing that the Alex Awards does so incredibly well, which is identify books that are going to help you better understand a situation. And the first one I want to talk about is called Tell the Wolves I'm Home by Carol Rifka Brunt. And it takes place in the 1980s and it follows a main character named June who is in high school, early high school. And she is extremely close with her uncle, Finn, who is an artist. And... She lives in somewhere in like the greater New York City area. I don't believe in New York City, but maybe like Long Island or something like that. She's so, so close to her uncle and her uncle dies of AIDS very early on in the novel. And this is at a time in the 1980s. AIDS is not well understood. And she realizes that there's an entire side to her beloved uncle that she never knew about, which was his partner and how he is grieving and what he has lost. And June starts with a very selfish concept of her grief of this is my uncle who I loved and who I had a relationship with, but she becomes friends with her uncle's partner and starts to really develop a, a relationship with him and understand him better and what he's lost and what, her family has lost and what the art community has lost and what the gay community is losing. And it becomes a very intimate portrait of a young woman who is grappling with grief, which I needed to see at a time when I was grappling with a similar type of grief in my life. And it really helped me process what I was going through. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's nothing more, more essential than a book like that I think that helps you better understand what you're going through and that's something that we've talked about on multiple episodes of this podcast um but Tell the Wolves I'm Home is also written so beautifully and it grabs the 1980s in a really perfect way that feels very realistic without feeling like suffocating because yeah. the 1980s can be <laughs> a real mess in a certain <laughs> way um acid wash jeans that hair all of that kind of stuff but it kind of picks out like the best parts of the 1980s and drops them in and she even talks about a certain aspect at one point I remember this reading it in 2012 and not having read it since I remember her talking about the train that goes through the Bronx Zoo and that is just the kind of detail that sticks with you as a reader and um, that is one of the things that made Tell the Wolves I'm Home so so strong and so relatable regardless of whether you're 22 and trying to figure out what's going on with your life or you're 40 or you're 60. I don't know. It's great. Um, the other book that I'd like to highlight is Roughneck by one of my favorite graphic novelists and one of my favorite Jeffs because I like many Jeffs, but Jeff Lemire may be one of my top two, I think top two Jeffs. Um, and 
Roughneck is a graphic novel and it's a pretty physically large graphic novel. It's a larger format. Jeff Lemire's trademark as an artist is watercolor. And he he does pen and ink to draw everything out and then watercolors over it. And Roughneck is such a beautiful example of his skill as an artist. And he's one of the hardest working dudes in graphic novels and comics. Like it seems like every time I turn around, he's put out something else. But the work that he's made as an individual where he is both the writer and the artist tend to focus on Canada, which is where he's from, where he lives, but a very rural aspect of Canada that is kind of lonesome in a certain way. And Roughneck centers on a pair of siblings, a brother and a sister, and the brother is a washed up hockey player who is you know towing the line with his alcoholism and is really getting out of control in the small town in which he lives and one day his sister shows up unannounced and she is running from an abusive partner and they decide in order to protect her and kind of hide out until so that they can weather the storm they're going to pack up and move to the brother's cabin in the middle of nowhere in the woods and they have to grapple with their relationship and how it's kind of fallen apart over the years what was supposed to happen for the brother with his hockey career and that didn't because it actually ended with an injury. What's really beautiful about Roughneck is that the main storyline is told shades of blues and purples and um, grayish greens. It's a very muted palette. And when you get the flashbacks to the brother's hockey games, it turns yellow, neon green and orange and bright red and you get a real visual impact of what it's like to go back in time when things were successful for this brother versus when they're not now and that lingers in the mind really really well and it's a really relatable story Jeff Lemire's stuff is never it's never violent it's always quiet it's soothing and it's it's soothing in its lonesomeness in a way and it tells you that when you're struggling with this kind of stuff you're not alone it's fantastic. I love that book. Yeah, so much. I think that that is something that we kind of forget with a lot of literature that we are intensely emotional beings, just yeah. as humans in general. And it's so great to see books that really try to tap into and the intense emotions that we all feel at varying points. Um, and especially if you're like a young person, then you kind of go through emotion a lot more intensely than I feel like the quote unquote seasoned adults. You just kind of feel yeah. <laughs> everything is just so intense. Teens yeah. feel it all all the time. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and I know because I've been there. 100%. Yeah. And relatable. We want to have these books that celebrate that instead of ridiculing that. Right. And these are books that do that for sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now that we've talked about our favorites of the winners of the Alex Award, there are also every year dozens of nominees that are announced as part of Yalsa's vetted nominations list. So that ends up being a lot of books in the Alex Awards O-sphere, essentially. And we thought we'd each highlight one of our favorite nominees. So Carmenita, what's yours? My favorite nominee is Shrill, Notes from a Loud Woman um, by Lindy West. And it was a nominee in 2017. And this one taps into the emotional aspect. It's a nonfiction Essay collection slash memoir of sorts about um, Lindy's life of being a plus size woman, of being kind of a comedian, of being an essayist, and how she's navigated the world and moved around in the world. And um, it's just very much taps into her experiences in her early 20s. It covers dating and it covers her father dying and then this crazy thing that happened to her on twitter which is where a troll impersonated her father on twitter to sort of be to harass her where she knew it wasn't her father it was after he had died but did that to harass her and just be a general terrible person and it had such a profound impact on her when and actually through the course of the book, she interviews the person that did this and that had zero impact on his life. He like did it and immediately forgot, but it had such an impact on her life. And that was, um, that's especially a book I've been considering rereading because of the way she talks about how 
her parents' death made her into kind of a different person. And that's something that recently happened to me. And so that's something that I'm wanting to go back to. And I like that this has been nominated for the Alex Award because we have this idea that we tell teenagers especially, once you turn 18, you have to figure out your whole life and then that's it. You're done. But this book, Shrill, shows Lindy continuing to grow and change and develop as a person well into her 20s and 30s. And I think it's a really important thing to remind people that you are continuing to grow and change as a person. You're not just set and st- carved into stone when you're 18 years old. We are right. human. You're not even physically done growing at the age of no. 18. <laughs> like, <laughs> there's still change yeah. to come. Yeah, your, what is it, your amygdala uh, hasn't completely developed uh, right. until you're, what, 22, 23, something and like that? And I mean, let's yeah. be frank. Looking at the physical human body, let alone the brain and how it develops and functions, your body is forever changing. Oh, yeah. Right. 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 Gaining hair in certain places, losing it in others, depending. Or you're getting, your skin may change with age, you get more freckles, anything like that. That all changes over time. And so to assume that your brain does not. Yes. And who you are and right. your essence as a human does not change is utterly befuddling. Yes. <laughs> Joseph, what's your book? So my my pick is um, a 2014 novel by Jeff Vandermeer. Um, my other favorite, Jeff. Jeff, Jeff, Jeff. <laughs> showcase of Jeff's here on today's podcast titled Annihilation. And it's the first book in a trilogy of novels um, that are known as the Southern Reach Trilogy. It follows a group of four women uh, who are set out on an expedition to explore the various strange goings on in an area um, of Florida known as Area X. It's a work of weird fiction. I think that's probably how Vandermeer himself would characterize it, which means that it is in some ways a hybrid of uh, psychological fiction horror and science fiction all mixing and melding together because the novel itself is told from the perspective of the biologist who is an absolutely fascinating character and at times the book is almost beautiful in what it is trying to describe or wrap its own perspective around uh, the the uncanny natural evolutions that are being witnessed in Area X at other times. It is so chilling and claustrophobic and frightening to leave you with images and phrases that you may never shake from your mind. And it's a novel that in in this case is had a relatively successful afterlife as a film adaptation. Uh, by Alex Garland, uh, starring Natalie Portman and others, that takes some liberties with the novel, and maybe people have read the or have seen the film, and so perhaps that could be a, a pathway into the novel. But I also think that it's a book that, m- my reckon, is is maybe a pathway into weird fiction, either Ooh. all the way back to. Lovecraft or all the way forward into, you know, writers like Caitlin Kiernan or Ruth Emery's and others, uh, even N.K. Jemisin um, has her has her Lovecraftian tinges. Um, so I think that's a it's a book that that opens up um, readers in a number of different ways, um, perhaps even in the direction of fiction that explores climate change not necessarily as a lived historical reality of natural disasters, but instead as this looming specter of mystery and beauty and terror. Because I think that's great because we don't have, these aren't books that have to be super simple. Right. They can be incredibly layered and cover several genres or have a lot going on and still be notable for that appeal. Precisely. So that's my pick. Jess, what do you have? My pick is American War by Omar el And I read this a couple of years ago. I actually listened to it as an audiobook, And I have to mention this because the audiobook narrator is stupendous. Yes. His name is Dion Graham. He is known as the voice for the first 48, I believe. And I would listen to that man read the phone book. (laughs) I would listen to that man read signs on the interstate, quite frankly. He has an incredible voice. But 
so I highly recommend the audiobook, but if you're actually interested in the plot as well, I don't know, maybe. Um, it takes place in 2074, and it is a work of speculative fiction around the Second American Civil War. And war has broken out because there is a section of the country that is partially underwater and refuses to believe in renewable energy. And the other part of the country is insistent upon renewable energy, and there is a fight over that and focuses on the main character whose name is Surratt Chestnut and she lives in Louisiana where the waters have increasingly risen to the point where half of Louisiana is underneath the Gulf of Mexico and I will also recommend the book because there's a map which we've talked about on previous episodes of the podcast it's such a treat when you get a map a map is such a delight always really helps to build out a world And Surratt and her family are relocated essentially as refugees of the war into a place called Camp Patience. And Camp Patience comes with all of the horrors that you would expect of a camp like that, a refugee camp essentially in in the country during a war. And Surratt is recruited for a very specific task. And she is given the duty to do what she needs to do for her side of the war. And American War is, I mean, it's, again, if we want to talk about books where it doesn't glaze over anything, American War is really gritty. Mm -hmm. There's a pretty violent section where Camp Patience is attacked that is very emotional and hard to read. And Surratt loses much of her family due to that. And that's very difficult for her. And it shapes her in a certain way. But again, that's super relatable as well, because what do you do when you lose your family? It shapes you in a certain way. And Surat is one of those heroines that really defies definition, easy definition. And that makes her all the more intriguing. And Omar Alakad, I'm like sitting here waiting for him to drop another book so I can read it because it was <laughs> I loved American War and thought it was really, really good. Yeah. There are a few books that I've read in recent years that have haunted me as having some profound insights into the present and into the experience of our previous calendar year with everything that we lived through from the pandemic to its politics quite that haunted me quite like American War did. Um, and that was a book that I found myself thinking about so much and honestly being a little afraid to reread it because of how, how much it really spoke to the present. Um, but, uh, I want to throw in a, a, just a pitch for that book. Yeah. Haunting is a, I think a great word for it. And it's a book that we read with our, our book lovers book club here at the library. And it was very well received and we had a great conversation around it because it is, it's one of those things that allows you to approach something like the topic of climate change and say, this is what could happen to our country if we don't do something about this. Because we seem, I'm, we're sitting here recording this episode a week after um, an enormous snowstorm hit Texas and took down about 90% of their power grid in the state because of the way that they have their power structured and it's deregulated by the, from the federal government. So the state controls it. And that meant that there was, there was no backup coming. And when you see that and that you can look at that state and say, that is really oil versus renewable energy right there or natural gas versus renewable energy, write it out large. And that is American war. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, you've both convinced me. I just checked out the audiobook. Excellent. Oh, <laughs> yay. Yeah. Readers advised. All right. In real time. We have it here on tape, <laughs> folks. You think I trust the e-audiobook, we... ha- e-audiobook and e-book app, Libby? Look at that. I was going to say, now, how did you check that out? What did you, uh, <laughs> was there a particular service that you used? Let's make this into a commercial. Uh-huh. <laughs> Brought to you by Brought Libby. Brought to you <laughs> So in addition to that, uh, one more. I want to hear your retrospective nominee. The Alex Awards start in 1998. They fall under the umbrella of ALA and YALSA in 2002. So before 1998, what's one book that you would want to see nominated or given an Alex Award? 
Carmenita? My pick is, I feel like this was an easy pick. Um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. One of, potentially one of the most famous um, modern science fiction novels, TV show, um, TV show book, everything that it can be turned into, it's kind of been turned into. And I believe it even started as a radio show, so you even get some podcast element to it. Um, A book that's had a profound impact on pop culture, and it's a book I've read at least five or six times. It's one of my great rereads because it has such a great audiobook. And every time I read it, I just laugh out loud. It's so funny in such a weird kind of way. And it's something that I think almost anyone would like from people that are, of course, huge fans of hard science fiction to people that have never even touched science fiction or considered it. It's just got something for everyone in a way. And I think that that makes it incredibly palatable and fun for younger readers and for people trying to get back into reading or get into reading for the first time. So um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, my main number one um, retrospective. And it came out in 1979. Nice. Coincidentally, I also have a book from 1979 what? that I want to uh, uh, nominate for my uh, retrospective <laughs> Alex Award winner, um, Octavia Butler's classic novel, Kindred, which is a, uh, a hybrid work of science fiction and in some ways uh, slave narrative. Um, it's a novel that uh, follows the, the story of a of the black writer Dana, who finds herself essentially shuttling back and forth between present day Los Angeles and the antebellum uh, South, in particular a plantation in Maryland uh, where her ancestors lived. She meets her ancestors, does not realize that's who they are at first. And what unfolds is a really complex powerful story about the intersections of identity and power and gender uh, because she herself in present day Los Angeles is in an interracial relationship and she comes to realize that her ancestry traces back to a, a woman who was enslaved and the white owner of the plantation. And so she's really thinking through the various levels of connection there, forced and otherwise. And it's a, it's a book that I have a, a brief anecdote to share just about it, and in, in particular my experience of teaching it in the context of a science fiction class, where I had a student in the class who... I, I think had a lot of things going on uh, otherwise through through the semester and um, wasn't engaged wasn't as into the other writers that we were reading over the course of the semester. But when we finally got to Octavia Butler and after we had read some of her short stories and really started reading Kindred, this particular student came up to me. I think after maybe the second class about the book and um, and said, you know that she really loved the book and was so interested in it um, and was just couldn't wait to see what was going <laughs> to happen that despite the fact that we were moving fairly slowly through the book, she finished it the night before and like just had to read to the end because <laughs> she, she had gotten, we've all to, had that experience. Exactly. She had gotten to the point in the book where it was like, Oh, there's the hook. Yeah. Time travel, slavery, all of this stuff. Um, but, but I think then she got to the other hook where she realized, oh, Octavia Butler's doing something here that is not easy to summarize and is not even super easy to think about, um, because of the ethical implications of, um, these past relationships and what she's, what she's doing with the time travel story to meet your ancestors, <laughs> uh, uh, narrative that we might all be familiar with through back to the future. Yeah. Right. It's a real gnarly twist on that version of a story. So in, it's another case where I felt like I was having that Alex award 
experience yeah. in some way with exactly the right reader at exactly the right age for this particular book that predated the Alex Awards, but totally should have been uh, should have been recognized. And the essence that we've talked about of helping someone get into reading in general. Right. Jess, what about you? Mine is absolutely Slaughterhouse Five by Kurt Vonnegut, which <laughs> if I'm you, shocked. Big big surprise, but I feel like it. One thing that we didn't really talk about when we talked about on our podcast episode about it, which if you haven't listened, I highly recommend. It's pretty good if I do say so myself. It's one of my favorite books, but to look at it from the perspective of I didn't read this book until I was fully grown up as an adult. And I think about I wish I had read it in high school. I wish I had been there for it when I was growing up or I wish it had been there for me when I was growing up. And I think, boy, I missed out. And that's the kind of book where you say, yeah, if you feel like you've missed out for it, maybe it's a good one to give to teens. And I know there are a lot of teens. My boyfriend read it when he was a teenager and really loved it and holds it dear in his heart and um, has just really enjoyed it. And I know that other people have, and I feel like it's one of those that really fits because you get the combination of, yeah, the trauma of World War II, which you're learning about and understanding a little bit more expansively as a high schooler. A topic that isn't really covered, which is the firebombing or the air bombing of Dresden. But then there's also the wildness of aliens. <laughs> and that is really gripping yes. and really interesting. And it's something creative that as a teen reading books at that point, you will not have seen that done yet no. at all. And so it opens up an entire new world. And that's the point with the Alex Awards is that you t- they take you to an entirely new world of reading and open up a whole new pathway, which is Kurt Vonnegut. And I, I think a lot of his books could have been Alex Award winners if the Alex Awards had been around when they were coming out. Cat's Cradle for sure. So with that in mind, we've just talked about a bunch of our favorites and our highlights. Knowing what you know about the Alex Awards, knowing what you know about the books that you've read, do you feel like the Alex Awards are accurate? Like in the sense of... Do you feel like they do a good job of finding these books with a special appeal? With a special appeal? I think they do. Because I think that um, they cover... They focus on... It's so hard to focus on something so broad as appeal. And I think they do such a good job of representing different genres, different types of stories. And um, they're able to cover such a wide berth of what it means to be appealing. And I think they, even though that's something that was, is vague and hard to really say, I think they somehow capture it really well. Yeah. I think they do as well. And even, and just speaking from the perspective of having read and enjoyed um, some titles, uh, titles on both ends of the beginning of the awards to the, this most recent batch of, of award winners. I think looking at the list, the list themselves, both of the winners and the nominees, what you see is a real index of how that sense of special appeal changes and broadens and evolves over time. So, um, so I think that even with our imaginary projection back into the 70s and even into the 60s, we could see how what special appeal might have looked like then. We might not be able to imagine what it would, what exactly it would look like in the future. Um, but but it's clear from from the list of of just what we've talked about and what uh, what has been chosen, uh, just how plastic that category is, right? Yeah, and it just hit me with with that kind of specific comparison of how appeal is changing. So Hitchhiker's Guide came out in 1979, 10 years after the moon landing. So the teens of that time would have remembered watching the moon landing when they were kids. Right. So it would have had massive... uh, Now it's like you see a clip on YouTube and you're like, oh yeah, sure. (laughs) (laughs) But to them, it would have... people To teenagers in 1979, it would have had a massive appeal of like, oh, Yeah, there's a huge contextual difference, right, for all of these books. I mean, I think about even when I read Into Thin in high school and then I think about right now here in 2021 K2 uh, was finally conquered in the winter season for the very first time and it had never been climbed to the top of before during the winter so it's the world changes for these books and the context changes for these books but and the our appeal and what our appeals are as readers changes but the Alex Awards are always going to have that special place where it it just feels like there's there's a vibe there for these books for sure and it just feels like something that you can grab for that is going to 
help you and support you in a certain way without being trying. And I think that's something that for a lot of readers they need right now. Yes. So in yeah. a way, the Alex Awards have never been more relevant. Right. Again, they split the difference between accessibility and complexity. Yeah. Um, because people like complexity, um, but they also like to feel welcome in, by the by the books that they read. The one last thing that I want to say about the Alex Awards is that these are really like I cannot underscore enough how unique this award category is. Because it takes into account the end result, which is someone reading a book. So many of the awards, and I'm not just talking about book awards. You think about the Oscars, the Golden Globes, the Grammys. They are all about rewarding the merit and skill and capability of the creator, which is very important. Don't get me wrong. That's really what art making is about. But at the end of the day, your art is going to someone and I almost wish that we had more awards like this. Definitely. That say this is going to be something that is for you. Because a lot of people, I think, watch the Oscars and are like, I'd never watch this stuff yeah. for the most part. Um, a lot of people watch the Grammys. I think of back when Arcade Fire won for album of the year for funeral and everyone was so affronted because they were like, this isn't, this isn't my kind of music. Mm -hmm. And whereas with the Alex awards, this is one time where we really see that this is being driven by who is going to read this stuff and if it's going to work for them. And I really, my hats off to Yalsa and the people who coordinate the Alex awards every year because they do a fantastic job picking both the nominees and the winners And they have done a great job of continuing to diversify both in terms of format and genre, but as well as author representation. And I look forward to what they're picking next. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Book Lovers Podcast. All our titles are available in the Spartanburg County Public Library's collections via spartanburglibraries.org. For more information about the titles discussed on this episode, about other episodes, or about the hosts, check out our website, booklovers.podcast.squarespace.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to Book Lovers on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever you get your podcasts. 